name's Terry Singleton, and uh, I hope we have some exciting things to be able to talk about today. So I'm one of the old guys, just so you know. I have, this is my wife, Nancy, over here. Um, please don't ask her for comments during my talk. She might give them. <laughs> so um, we have been in ministry for 45 years now. Uh, I would like to claim I started at 12, but that's just not possible. So there's been a lot of changes in that amount of time. And uh, I see a whole lot of changes and a whole lot of people trying to do things today. And so I'd like to just you know, share with you some things that I think may be um, ways that things can work. One of the things that we realized before, I'm in Mesa, Arizona right now. Let me start with that. I've been there for 10 years. <coughs> I preached in Miami, Florida before that. And as we were leaving Miami, we realized there's a whole lot of things in Miami we never saw. And there's all this really cool stuff that you could go to, that you could see, but of course, I'm working. And if you're working, you don't have time to go see all that stuff. And so for some reason, we never did. And it happened to be that my day off turned out to be Thursday when we moved to Arizona. So we came up with Adventure Thursdays, which means we're going to go do something fun, something around the area, something in the place. We're not going to get caught again living in a place that is an incredible place and then not taking advantage and not even getting to see what's going on. So we decided to do Adventure Thursdays. And uh, that's kind of how I want you to take this. Let's go on an adventure. Because I think that's really what it's like in being able to be a Christian these days. Um, the first thing is it's all about God. I hope this first part all of you know. God is amazing. God is creator. He makes amazing things. His salvation is absolutely stunning. His plans are not always understandable, but uh, they are unquestionable. His holiness is above all. His honesty, his truth, his integrity, his purity. There's just nothing that touches God whatsoever at all. And God has a plan. And we are trying to be part of that plan. And uh, sometimes we wonder if we are really in the plan or not. And we understand how we should be doing it. And then there's my thinking of the plan of God and what his plan really is. So when I first started preaching, um, of course God wants me to be in a big church and to save lots of people and you get all these great ideas and things like that. And so you're out to uh, convert the world. And even though nobody else has been able to do this, you're absolutely convinced that you're the one that can do it. Okay? So you start there. You want to preach for a big church, and the first thing God said, it's not about you. Okay. Well, I was convinced God still wants big churches. That's always our assumption until I learned that bigger churches just means bigger problems. <laughs> and uh, then I figured out God wants healthy churches. And so that has been my goal ever since, is not to try and make bigger churches, whatever size of church you live in is probably the size 
is supposed to be for the level of activity and leadership that you have. If you want it to be a different size, then change some of the leadership and change some of the activities, and it will change. It's as simple as that. Um, if you're not willing to do more, then it probably won't be more. If there's more things you're able to do and incorporate, then chances are it's going to be effective and it will go. Uh, I've seen this happen. I've been in very small churches. I've been in bigger churches. Not super big like some of the other guys. Um, but big enough. Uh, and I think church health is maybe one of the most important things. Um, today, one of the things that we see is reports of failing churches. And that there is a decline. I was in Rick Ashley's class earlier. He said we are losing about 200, 2,000 people a month. Um, there are nine churches closing in a month. And that's never good news. Um, I'm going to show you how to deal with that. I think the reports about our greatness when I was a kid were exaggerated because I heard reports that we are the fastest growing church in the world. Well, I'm not sure we ever really were, but possibly. And now we hear reports about we're the fastest dying church in the world. Well, I don't really think that's true either. Both of those are exaggerated. and. Uh, there are churches who are declining, but let's figure out how we can get around that. There are a lot of places that have the nuns, uh, don't have any religious affiliation anymore, or the duns, I am done with church, I'll never be back, I don't want anything to do with you. And so they're tired of church and they're just not coming back. trouble believing all the bad news. That can cause us lots of trouble. <coughs> and I think that's where we run into some difficulty sometimes. We hear about a And so we hired police to come protect us. Well, everybody's happy. They like that. It's a little bit reactionary. And it seems like that's a lot of what we do, is we're reactionary. Whenever something happens, we'll, then we'll react to it. And we'll cause something to... <coughs> Sometime around the time when I first started preaching, there was a development. <coughs> there was a development of consumer-driven churches. And that was, let's go and let's figure out what people want, and we'll just do that. And we'll have more people. Because the goal was really to have more people. Well, it worked. It did well. 
not really disciples, but they had feet worthy feats. I don't think we need to be reactionary about this at all. Um, we need to understand what God's trying to do. We need to see what it is. We have claimed for a long time to be a restoration church. The very definition of us being a restoration church means that something has failed. And so why are we worried about this? There has been a time where something has failed, and we restarted, and we restored the New Testament church. Worst case scenario, we may have to do that again. But it isn't that God isn't powerful, and it isn't that God isn't in control. And so I got a few principles that I would like to share with you about what I think makes a difference today. And the first one is simply this. Um, never believe your own press. Okay? When I first started, I heard someone come up and go, wow, that is the best sermon I've ever heard. And so I thought two things. One is, this is your first time ever in a church, or you just really haven't been anywhere. And of course, then that little thing slips in and says, maybe I'm really good. And... Uh, the next week, it's the same thing, you know. Oh, I think you're, that's the best sermon I ever heard. Wow, this one's better than the last one. And I figured out. Until we had a meeting, and uh, then he comes up to the other guy and goes, Wow, that's the best sermon I've ever heard. <laughs> okay, wait a minute. I'm starting to catch on. The audience isn't the people. The audience is God. That's the only one we're trying to please. And so don't ever believe your own press as people tell you how great you are. That really isn't the point. It really doesn't matter. It's really about how great God is. Along with that, don't believe your own failure. Because I think we tend to start doing that in these times now. Oh, well, yeah, it's not going to work. It's not going to go. We can't do this. Look, this is the trend. And so we just want to give up before we've even started. And I don't think that's right either. It may not be as bad as people are telling you it is, or maybe it is, and it's time for God to work the miracle, right? Because that's what happens when things get really bad. See, we're all part of a bigger picture, and this huge thing that God is trying to do does not involve just us. It has more to do with some of the things going on around us. There's a lot of Bible stories, and I want to reference some today. Um, God sends Elijah to a failing nation. Uh, 2 Kings, or 1 Kings 18, you can see God sends Elijah. He preaches. The people don't repent. So he comes up with this thing with the prophets of Baal. Let's have a contest. And without going into it, he wins the contest. How great it is. You know, they got their altar. He's got his altar. Their God did not respond to human suffering. His God responded immediately and burned up their altar too. And it's what a great story. It's huge. And so you think you've won. And then the next day, Jezebel says, and I'm going to kill you for that. And so he didn't win anything. And God sends him away to a cave to say, why are you here? And he has to deal with, we are all part of a bigger picture. I have more people for you to appoint. It's not all about you. You are not irreplaceable, but I need you to do your part. 
And so he goes and he does. And so I think that's the first thing that you have to realize is that it is not all about you. And preachers have terrible egos. I can just tell you that right now. Um, and it's kind of hard to get over those sometimes. But that's what you have to do. It is not about you. It is more about God. We're all part of the bigger picture. The second thing is that people of faith make a difference. Um, I can remember climbing trees when I was little because this is what we had to do. That's all there was. There were no video games. There was no screens. There was no, just go outside and play. And so we would climb to the highest tree that we could find and we would play in the tree all day. There's lots of branches. And I was looking down one time and I saw this big group of leaves. You couldn't even see a branch. I said, man, I've been hearing all this stuff about faith and that God would catch you. If I just jumped off of here, would God catch me? And it looks so nice and lush and green. And you know it's not going to hold you, but, you know, are there branches below? Sure enough, climb down. Yeah, there's a lot of branches down there. I remember them on the way up. And so you jump off, and, man, sure enough, right there's a branch. And it wasn't even that far, but you got through the leaves, and boom, there you are. And this is great. This is so wonderful. You know, God provides and all of this. It doesn't matter. And, and so you start to believe all this stuff. And so you climb back up and say, let's do it again, God. And uh, you're going to jump off into this. And uh, it's great. Until one time when I missed that first branch. And it was five or six branches down. And I just thought, maybe we don't want to test God that much. <laughs> But it does all begin with faith. And there has to be a point in your life where you decide you're going to jump. That's the whole point. And, and that you may not see where you're going to land. You may not understand it. There has to be a point of faith. It doesn't matter what culture it's in. It doesn't matter what the good old days are like. It does not matter about any of that. Faith is universal. It goes past all cultures. It goes past all time. And faith is just what God wants from us. We see here in Hebrews 11... A whole lot of people of faith. Uh, they are great examples of people of faith. Abraham believed God and reckoned him as righteousness. And then you get all of the descendants of Abraham and all of these great things. Most of those are from failed stories. Somebody else didn't do what they were supposed to do. And so then you get the results of that. You look at the book of the Judges and... Uh, they have a judge who delivers them. Great. God, that's so wonderful. And then they fall right back into sin again. And they fall away again. And so then there's another judge raised up, and then they fall away again. And another judge raised up, and it's a failure story. We don't see it as a success story about God always provides and gives you when you need it. That's great. That's very good. Um, David and Goliath, that whole story is about a kid who's not afraid when he comes to the army and sees they are all afraid. And what's going on is he doesn't see the problem. He sees this guy's defying God and uh, I'm not afraid. He says, I've got a 45 caliber rock. <laughs> what's the problem? <laughs> Nobody else has looked at it that way before. Goliath thinks he's come to a knife fight. 
Damon says, this isn't a knife fight. Why would I invite you that way? And in Judges 20:16, this this isn't this is just kind of off the wall. I just thought this was so cool. The people of, Bridge, of Benjamin are going to fight against Gibeah. In verse 16 of Judges 20, among these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. <laughs> Stuff. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. So David's from, I know this is earlier than David time, but the, David's from times of Benjamin. And so then you've got, yeah, this is, this is pretty good. David would understand what that's all about. You look at Nehemiah and he's rebuilding walls and it, it's something we've got to do that we understand. They were sent back, their time was up, 70 years of captivity, and so now go back, rebuild your city, rebuild the temple. Well, they go back and they rebuild the altar. They didn't quite get to the temple. So Haggai has to come and say, come on, do this. And then the walls are still broken. It is 92 years later. And Nehemiah learns they still haven't fixed the wall. And so he asked for permission to go back. Why did he have to be the one to go stop and fix the walls? And I love the verse in Nehemiah 6.15. So the walls were finished on the 25th day of the month of Eol in 52 days. And when all their enemies heard of it and all the nations around us were afraid and felt greatly, in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. That's the key to the, but you never know that until you've already got done, and you look back and go, really, 52 days, that's all it took? Yeah. Why didn't we do that 92 years ago? <laughs> but you have to have somebody who's going to lead, somebody who's going to organize, somebody who's going to come, and somebody who's going to be there and be part of it. And, uh, it, we have all these stories. I mean, what aren't we paying attention to this? It does take a person of faith. Um, one more in Exodus 14. And this just speaks to the idea of where we are. Do you trust God? I think you do. We're trying to. And Exodus 14, you see this terrible plan. They're going to lead them out of Egypt. And they're going to lead them to the south and to the north. They're going to wander around and get back over. And they're going to end up right at the Red Sea. And that's the plan. Because then they will think that you're wandering and you don't know what you're doing. <clears throat> wow, that's the plan? That's the plan. So they get there and the people complain. Look, there's a Red Sea in front of us. Egyptians are coming after us. We wish we would have died. And so Moses, you know, this is the great movie moment. Exodus 14, verse 13. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today shall never see again. And the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. Wow, that is so great. 
you stand firm and God's going to fight for you and you're going to see the salvation of the Lord and everything is wonderful. Okay? That's what Moses says to the people. And then there's conversation in verse 15 between Moses and God. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell this people of Israel to go forward and lift up your staff and stretch it over the land of the sea and divide it. The people of Israel may go through the sea on the dry ground. Well, why do you cry to me? You're the one that got us here. I mean, that's why I'm crying to you. So tell them to go forward. There's a sea. Don't you understand? He says, yeah, stretch it up. And of course, you assume that God has seen the movie. <laughs> right? You're going to stretch out your rod and immediately the walls go up like this. And all Israelites march through single file. You ever notice that in the movie? It's all single file. Two million people. Single file across the Red Sea. That's not quite the way it happens. Because that's the first part, is you stretch out your rod and I will send them across. And then verse 17, he says, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Well, the plan is we're going to go in the middle of the sea and there's these walls of water and there's no other way out and you're going to send them in after us? <laughs> That's the plan. Okay. And there's not a choice about this, is there? What's plan B? There is no plan B. So in verse 19, the angel of the Lord was going before the host of Israel and moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. This isn't the movie. He did what? He didn't blow one little channel through there. It was a strong east wind, and it blew. I don't think they were single file. You know, 10,000 in a club. Let's go across. You're trying to move that many people. Well, God says, all right. But the timing here is, is not quite the way it's supposed to go. I mean, he's going to stand up with his staff and put it out there and uh, say this, and the waters are going to part. That's not what happens. It just, the wind blows. That's it. The wind starts blowing. Okay, how long do you stand there with your rod? The wind's blowing. All right, well. And then the force that had been leading you, the angel of God comes and he comes behind you. And I don't know if you guys have ever been in fog. I think we have fog here in California. But I've been on top of a mountain skiing before where the fog is so thick, I cannot tell which way is down. I mean, I can't see my boots. And you hear voices. And at some point, I, I almost stood there like this because... I'm sure somebody's about to run over me on this 
mountain because nothing can see it. And those voices are so loud. And the fog seems to amplify that. And, you know, I, there's the sound of the chariots all night long. And they're rattling and they're driving back and forth. And God says, what's the problem? It's the neighborhood. <laughs> I mean, really. And so here you have all of this going on. The question becomes, do we really believe all this? The people are like, there's no angel to guide us. And they can't really see and they can't really understand. And this is all about God's glory. God says, I want to get my glory over them. And basically, the question is this. Are you willing to be bait? I don't know if you've ever thought that before. That God is using you for bait. Come on, Egyptians. Follow me. Well, that's kind of a dangerous situation, right? Yeah. We may not always like the plan of God. The question is, are you willing to follow God into failure? God never fails. God always succeeds, right? Did you hear the staff from churches? But can we be faithful? The question is, are you willing to be bait? Will there be a sudden victory? It makes a whole lot better story. Except not for Jesus, right? He was bait. all of us to take up our cross and it's not just him God raises Lazarus after letting him die would you allow God to use you for his purpose can we be people of faith like that 23 we will work and I'm going to tie all this together in just a minute There's a lot of times where we go through and, oh, that's good enough. There's not going to be that many people here tomorrow anyway. It's late. We're tired. Oh, that's good enough. The difference between big churches and small churches is the quality of the work. A lot of times that's about it. Maybe the neighborhood where they live. But if you put the quality of the work of a big church into a small church, it's not going to be small church anymore. And it just makes that kind of difference. 1 Corinthians 3.12 If anyone builds on the foundation of gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. I like that. He says, do your work. Sometimes you have straw to build with. Sometimes you may have something better to build with. We used to know how to do it. Church was very easy. Back 100 years ago, when I was young, uh, all we had to do was go to a lectureship or conference and get what somebody else was doing and copy it. Right? And so if they had a bus, we got a bus. If they had a Bible hour, we got a Bible hour. If they had children's church, we got children's church. Let's just go find whatever that new idea is and we'll copy it. 
Yeah, it never did work, did it? Because we were looking for the easy way out. We weren't looking to be people of faith. We were looking for the easy way out, and that never works. Now, you can get an idea from somebody else. I'm not going to say that's not good. Get an idea from wherever you get the idea from, but then make it your own and adapt it and revise it and make it work. You need the same kind of passion as what those first people did that makes it work. And what I've learned more is that sometimes the idea is not mine. Well, people are looking at me like, well, you're supposed to have the idea. You're the preacher. Well, guess what? Sometimes the preacher doesn't have the idea. But there's somebody sitting off to the side who's too afraid to say anything. They'll say, well, I think maybe we ought to do this. And your job is to listen and help them do it. It isn't that God doesn't give you the plan. You've got to listen when it's not yours. And it's not about you, as we talked about in the very beginning of this, or getting your idea or getting your way. So I think God gives churches what they need, but you've got to listen to everybody. The plan is not always your plan. It may be somebody else around you. And besides that, you realize the number of things that are only done once. I mean, it's huge. Um, one Garden of Eden, one flood, one burning bush, one ark, one journey to the new land, one Garden of Eden, one knocking down walls, one jar of oil, one fed by ravens, one Pentecost. But we still feel guilty that God didn't make multiple Pentecost. Never was the plan. Anymore, you know, Moses should have come up with the idea that, well, you know what? An ark worked for Noah. We'll just build a boat, sail down the Nile River, cross the Mediterranean Sea to the Promised Land. No. God says, why? Number four, who quality is it? Is your church as better quality? When you've been preaching for 45 years, you've got a lot of sermons. And when I first started, there were all these sermon books. And I said, man, i got to get me one of those. This would be great. Never could use one. I didn't know how people did that. And I always had to come up with something different, something that was on my own. And over the years, I've learned that's better. Because you're saying what God gave you this week for right now. And unfortunately, what happened in some preachers is we got three years worth of sermons and then we moved and we preached for three years and then we moved and we preached for three years and then we moved. And I'm not saying you can't reuse anything, but definitely make it where you are now, what God is trying to say to people now. Uh, let God give you today's message if they're if they're hiring a preacher to be the preacher to be in that place, man, let him be the one that says, this is the challenge, this is where the front line is, this is where we live, this is what God is trying to say to you today. And so I think that's really a challenge for all of us. Um, people want what's real, what's true, what's genuine. And by the way, it is not reality TV. 
I mean, maybe it's unscripted, but it's pretty scripted to me. It's just that God is at work now. And we are doing something live. And you can't preach the same old sermons. They're just in a different location. You need to see and be clear about what's trying to be known. If your sermon isn't in the 2000s, please don't use that. <laughs> the culture has changed so much, it's just not even in the same ballpark. Uh, and I still come looking for answers in workshops and lectureships and listening to people. But I don't look for the latest in theory. I look for people who are on the cutting edge. I look for people of faith. And I think that's what makes the difference go around. Number five is invest in children. That is the way to the next generation. Um, care about what they care about. We get tired and quit when they don't respond as much. But grandpa still needs to be grandpa. Uh, don't do it for their parents. They will try to get you to do that. Please take my children. You did such a good job raising me. If I'd done a good job raising you, you'd raise your own. <laughs> <laughs> so we refuse to take responsibility for raising them, but neither are we going to abandon them. We are grandparents. And I was guessing that some of you might be my age in here. And that just means that's the good term for what we are and for what we do. And that is much different than a parent. Um, we know some things, and it may not be replica, but we still love you. And that's maybe what's more important than anything else. You can still think like a grandparent and still love like a grandparent. Rather than a nursing home resident, you're going to be much better off. You know the difference, right? The difference is the grandparent is the one who sneaks you candy. The nursing home resident is the one who asks you if you brought any. <laughs> so don't ask for what you can get out of it. You have to be the one who's still trying to give a few things. I've seen this work three times. Three amazing, miraculous times. Um, one was at a little church in Kansas. 45 people on a good Sunday morning with everybody there and two dogs in the back. And uh, some people came up and did a vacation Bible school for us. And, um, we thought this was great. Knocked doors and brought kids in and, and all of this. This was the smallest church I had ever been in. We had three classrooms. The building would only seat 90 and I had been preaching about faith because what else do you preach about in a place like that? You better preach. You've got to believe in something here. And so I had been preaching about faith, and they were like, you know what? All the people are going with their bus, but I think we could go in cars, and we could pick up all these kids. I'm like, what? And they said, no, we could do this. And one of the guys, we only had four guys. One of the guys there said, yeah. I said, oh, I would teach the class if we would just do that. Why don't we just go around and see if we couldn't get some of those kids to come back? And so they did. And, and I was like, well, what? 
He says, yeah, you just take the adults. You guys go to the back little classroom where we usually have the children. There weren't that many adults on a Wednesday night. And let me have the auditorium. I said, well, who's going to do this with you? We've never done this before. He said, Terry, you've been talking to us about faith. <laughs> I said, I just didn't know you were listening. <laughs> so sure enough, we did that. Uh, it was amazing. It, it was completely shocking. All kinds of kids came. It was over the top. We're running 60, 70 kids, which, you know, when we started with five is a lot. Yeah. So if you're from a small church, that works in small church. Start with children because children come. Um, we did bus church in Idaho and Coeur d'Alene. Um, we only had like 150 people. I finally figured out. And our attendance is like 300, 350. Like, well, that's why there's no workers here. Because <laughs> we've got all these kids and it was going great and it went great for years. And the last one was in Mesa, Arizona, where I am now, where we built a village and we have rotation teaching. It is very different and uh, kids love it, teachers love it. <coughs> we had a problem getting five teachers <coughs> to be able to teach the kids on a Sunday morning. Um, now we don't and we have closer to 50 teachers throughout a year, um, nobody feels stuck. And uh, it's amazing. If you want to look at Memorial Grove, they're the one who pioneered it as the, yes, we stole it. <laughs> but make it your own. Ours is Village Del Sol. It's something that's one of those things that uh, is, is just amazing. The reason I say that and emphasize this is that's why my wife is here because her parents did not go to church and she was brought to church if grandpa didn't bring her and she was a drop off and there were people there who cared enough about her to talk to her and that's why she's a Christian today and so it may not be people your age but pay attention to those little ones I mean just they're running by you Stick your foot out sometime. That's <laughs> <laughs> your name. <laughs> Parents will follow where their children are involved. We have the great plan with the bus program and all that kind of stuff is we will convert parents. No. We will raise up the children. No. The one thing that did work is all of the work we put into that, when those people got in trouble, they decided, that's my church where I go. Because you took care of my kids. When it started in Mesa, it was basically a white-haired church. And there's still a lot of that. But right now, there's a whole lot of young people who are there. And the reason is, we try to do something with kids. size you are. Do something with kids. And so if there are no buses anymore, that program wouldn't work. That'd be a nightmare for security. And believe me, we don't want that kind of headache. But do something with kids anyway. If you spend your money and your time and your effort 
on their kids' parents' genetics. Because they'll say, I want my kid to be part of that. And so as somebody who cares. And it changes the church from right here to being in babies. Because that's the way it is. Um, number six, last one. It's not about the results. First Corinthians 3, 7. So neither the one who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So don't try to be responsible for what you have no control over. I learned that with preaching. I'm supposed to get up and I'm supposed to preach the sermon. And God determines what they will hear. I always thought I had a great message. Boy, I told them this time and nobody got it. And then I started noticing that people would say, how did you know? How did that know what? did you know what's going on? That was so right on my life. There had to be somebody who told you what I was doing. Had no clue. And I like it much better that way. Because God seems to intentionally focus things on some people. And that way it takes me out of it. I don't have to do that. And then they would tell me what it is that I said that they were impressed with. That wasn't even in my notes. That was an accidental thing that slipped out. I had no idea. I'm like, well, this was so good. I'm like, I just said thank you. I never liked that one. <laughs> uh, but that's the way God works. When we just do our part, he's the one that makes things happen. And it's amazing to watch what happens as all of that works. So work in your corner of the world. We are not as global as we think. We think we're global because we got Facebook friends from all over, and we can reach all the way around the world, and you can't get all those Facebook friends to forward anything, can you? <laughs> we are not as global as we think. Um, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing small as much as it is doing big. It's still worth doing. And there's going to be difficult times and there's going to be impossible times and uh, you will not change the world forever. You may change it for right now, but you will not change it forever. Another 5,000 years, nobody's going to remember that you sat here at that time. We always think, well, oh, 10 years. Well, no. I mean, really, give yourself some history. But there are some people who stopped it in its tracks. And so you've got people like Nehemiah and Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah who changed the world in their time. And God did not destroy while they were there. It's, it's amazing to me to look at the Babylonian captivity and it's basically a punishment for generations doing something wrong. And they were told that they would fail, they will die, you will be lost, and that there will be a remnant. Well, if you're already told that by the prophet, you're going to fail, you're going to die, you're going to all be lost, you're going to all be taken into captivity. Okay, what else are you going to do? I mean, it's kind of like the news today about churches, right? Well, if we're all going, well, I guess that's it. Don't believe that. 
And Hezekiah didn't. And he was faithful. And he restored temple worship. And he made a change. And for his lifetime, it did not happen. That's all I'm asking is for your lifetime. Because somebody else is going to have to deal with the one after that. It won't change it forever. But it can change it for your lifetime. And this is kind of a new idea. If you really want to have a culture change, you've got to let God do that. Because as you look at the Old Testament, their struggle all the way through is idolatry, 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 idolatry. From the golden calf, Ahab, Baals, idolatry all the way through. You know what it takes to change the culture of idolatry? 70 years of captivity. When you get to Jesus, got Pharisees, not idolaters. They've gone completely out the other side and said, how strict can I be about doing the will of God? If God wants a culture change, God will bring about a culture change. We're just here, right? Provided through. Be the faithful ones to do whatever. And where there's captivity, where there's not captivity, here's what I want you to do. Do whatever makes you sing in prison. That's the thing. Prisoners listen to that. There is always a way to live in faith, and I've seen those things all come together. Do quality work with children. Do it in your churches. Do it all together. And there is a way to live in faith without being stuck in the past culture, even if the one where we are declines around us. Maybe God puts you. I'm not a doom and gloom prophet. I don't know that that's true. But I'm not sure it matters if we are. We are here for the adventure. And that's where we're going to be. It's going to be a wild ride. Look at what's going on in churches and look at the way things are changing and how they're trying to fix it. And if you're old like me, it's, it's just almost makes your head spin. I just know God's in control. And he is going to make the difference. He is the one that's going to make it all work. And it's going to be a great adventure. All right, that's all I've got.